Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Trey Orndorff, and this is our Week in Review. We want to start by uh, mentioning this week that we're actually going doing the show on Saturday. So if anything crazy on Sunday happens, that's why you're not hearing about that right now. But we also wanted to announce that we're going to be moving the show up kind of semi-permanently. We're going to be dropping the show on Saturday afternoons as we move forward because in part, we think that you're going to get a better look at the week behind us so that we can kind of sum those things up as the weekend ends. And then, then you can be ready to kind of listen to this in the weekend or as you move forward in the beginning of the week. And so we're going to be starting that this time, but we're not going to be mentioning that every week. So here's politics guys on Saturdays. And that's what we're going to be doing as we move forward. This week, we've had Lots of fascinating things taking place. Really, last week blended into this week. Last week, as I'm sure most of our listeners are aware, we had the kind of the Nazi uh, white power movements in Charlottesville, Virginia. So Trump has kind of a non-statement, and we spent a lot of time last week talking about this. But then on Tuesday, Trump comes back after issuing kind of a more generic condemnation of uh, white nationalism and neo-Nazis and the alt-right. And he basically says, we need to blame both sides. And he gets really angry with reporters. And he has some really fascinating and some phenomenal quotes. Um, He says, you're going to quote, you have a group on one side that's bad. You had a group on the other side that's very violent. Nobody wants to say that. I'll say that right now. Um, And he's going to go on to say that once you start tearing these statues down, you might as well just tear down Washington's statue and monument. So, (laughs) yeah, we got a lot of things to talk about this one. Um, So, Michael, what do you think about this this non-statement that you guys have already talked about once, but now we're coming back and he's kind of he's entrenching himself, not only just taking a non-statement, but kind of advocating, I have to say here, for the KKK. Yeah, you know, I don't know if Donald Trump is a racist or not. Uh, All I know, and this I think this is based on an awful lot of experience at this point, is Donald Trump hates being told what to do, hates criticism, just instinctively bristles. And the best way to get him to to pop off is to is to tell him he's doing something wrong and that he must do something. And that statement, that initial, uh, that second statement he made, you know, uh, saying that uh, uh, neo-Nazis are bad, like just the idea that you need to be prompted to make a statement like that, oh my God. But, you know, it had, it did not have that sort of spontaneous uh, Trump-like quality. It was like, you know, he was reading off a teleprompter, which, you know, obviously, you know, he was in that sense. And, And so I think he just resented the heck out of that. And finally, just couldn't handle all the criticism he was getting and just popped off. I don't think it has to do so much with him being racist, but I don't even think that matters. I think this idea of whether or not he's a racist or not, that's beside the point. The point is that in making the statements he's making, he is giving aid and comfort to racist and white nationalists. And that's the real problem. And, you know, to me, the fundamental problem with Donald Trump from the beginning is that he didn't he has never understood that you just can't pop off with whatever you want when you're president of the United States. You can't act like a private citizen. You can't just say things off the cuff. And, you know, I think it's a great example just, you know, in reference to the the awful Barcelona attacks, you know, what's one of the first things he says is, hey, maybe we should try war crimes in response to this, essentially. I mean, what, what rational, what, what even remotely statesman-like person says that nobody, and, and, just 
this this clearly, you know, he's he's an old guy. He's set in his ways. He's not going to change. This is why you do not elect amateurs to the highest political position in the most powerful country in the world. So you're just a little passionate about that there, Michael. I can hear it. <laughs> just a tiny bit. Uh, but I've got two questions for you about that. I understand that passion. And and one is, is it doesn't take long to take a look uh, at the neo-Nazis' websites to see that he is getting some praise yeah. from around all of those groups. You know, he was initially, and I know that's one of the things we've already talked about, but now you kind of have this follow-up. Uh, and, you know, uh, we have a number of sites that are saying, oh, well, see, we told you that he was on our side. Uh, and they now are pointing to this kind of, as you call it, this pop-off, um, specifically pointing to, you know, he uses this phenomenal phrase, the alt-left, which, you know, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, which, but it, you know, this has been picked up. So what do you think about this type of framing? Because one of the things that I kind of want to ask you and, and see what you think about it is, so, you know, one of the problems that many on the right had with President Obama was he was the teleprompter president, right? He's the guy who's too on script. He's too thoughtful, right? Maybe he, you know, he's talking over us. And Trump might be the exact opposite of that. As you talked about, you know, he's, he's set in his ways. And he's going to pop off what he's doing. Uh, do you think that this is, is repugnant as we might find it? Do you think that people like this in the sense that he maybe not giving them the content that they want, but they like this mechanism of communication better? What do yeah. you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think 30 something percent of the public loves it, you know, <laughs> and when you take a look at his poll numbers, you know, they're, they're, they, they've cratered, but I, he's got that strong support from that base and they're not going anywhere. I mean, I think they, that's what they want from a president, right? They want that auth, what, what they would call authenticity. And, and so, so yeah, I, that's a great strategy. If you want to rev up some kind of, you know, crazed, base sort of movement, but that's not how you govern. And I think that's what, you know, that's what he's found. This is why people are quitting. Decent people are quitting him left and right. His entire Arts and Humanities Council resigned. I mean, executives are bailing on him left and right where he had to, you know, quit these, you know, he had to stop just uh, these uh, these uh, boards that he put together because there's no one who wants to serve on them. So he just has no clue how to govern. He's great at popping off. He's great at being an insurgent. And a lot of people like that. But what people don't understand is that's not how you run a country. That's not how you can run a diverse cult country with a lot of different people who see the world in very different ways. And it's just a disaster for that sort of thing. What do you think about this as we move forward? Because one of the things that's being suggested in the news this week is that we have already hit the lame duck portion of the Donald Trump presidency. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the Atlantic just ran an article on this. And further, as we take a look, you don't have to look deep into the Twitter accounts of the major Republicans um, to see that there is a lot of pushback coming down. Paul Ryan, Speaker Paul Ryan, called the comments repulsive. Quote, there can be no moral ambiguity. Uh, here in Florida, we have Marco Rubio saying that white nationalists were a hundred percent to blame and ended up pointing his finger at the president himself as being the problem. So does I mean a couple of weeks ago, Jay went down on record as saying that he thinks that there could be a challenger to Trump in the presidential primary for the Republicans. 
when we start seeing this, what's the future for any kind of Trump agenda once you've drawn your, your line in the sand at neo-Nazis? Yeah. Um, well, you know, uh, <laughs> I have a bunch of thoughts on that. But before I get to those, uh, I just want to take a, a, a quick minute to thank the first sponsor of the show. Actually, it's a really relevant sponsor this week, Trey, ZipRecruiter. Uh, you know, <laughs> right? I mean, wow, we, we couldn't script this better. But I mean, obviously, President Trump, he's having a hard time fighting, keeping staff, right? And OK, working for Donald Trump presents... Um, let's call them unique challenges, right? But, but it's still an extreme example of what I think is an almost universal truth that good help is hard to find. Uh, and that's where ZipRecruiter comes in. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with just one click. Then they've got this powerful technology that efficiently matches the right people to your jobs. And as Donald Trump could tell you, it's hard to find the right people for some of these jobs. ZipRecruiter does it better than anyone else. And that's why they're different. Unlike those other job sites, ZipRecruiter does not depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. And over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. And with ZipRecruiter, you don't have to juggle emails or calls to the office. You just go to their easy-to-use dashboard and screen, rate, and manage candidates all in that one place. So, hey, find out today about ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, Politics Guys listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. One more time so that even if you're listening to this part of the show at double speed, you'll get it. The post jobs for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. Okay, so, you know, on to your, your question about that. Uh, it's pretty clear, you're right, that a number of prominent Republicans are at least being a lot more vocal in breaking, I maybe not breaking with the president, but condemning his remarks. You know, I was really struck, I think, as a lot of people were, by what uh, Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee said. He's a Republican. He said, the president has not yet been able to demonstrate the stability or some of the competence that he needs to, to, to be successful. I mean, that, geez, that's, that's a pretty strong statement. And that's exactly the sort of statement you would expect if maybe a few years down the line, you see a, a real challenge, and this is not an unpre- this would not be an unprecedented thing. I mean, we look back to uh, the Ford presidency. Ronald Reagan challenged uh, uh, challenged Gerald Ford. Ted Kennedy challenged uh, Jimmy Carter. So there are there are a number of examples of this in the last half century or so, where uh, a sitting president has faced a, a significant challenge, and in each case, that uh, that president ended up. Uh, winning the challenge, but losing the general election. And at this point, I don't see how there's any possibility of a second uh, Donald Trump term. I guess, you know, anything can happen, right? But boy, that seems like a pretty small possibility. And and, uh, I don't know if there'd be a successful challenge, but uh, at this point, I think if, you know, you certainly, you you could see that potentially happening if the right person comes along. Well, you know, and that's a fascinating question because in part, I think on Friday, we got an indication of some of the kinds of media mix that might be happening as a result of this, because as listeners might be aware, Stephen uh, Bannon was ousted from the White House. Uh, Originally, it's said to be by mutual agreement, but we have word on the inside that actually Trump had already told his top staff that this was going to take place. Uh, Bannon 
he ties into talking about Charlottesville because one of the big questions was his ties with Brett Bart and extreme nationalism. I mean, that was yeah. one of the questions on the left about the people that Trump was surrounding himself with. And so this seems to be kind of an interesting moment for Bannon to be exiting because on the one hand you have Trump drawing a line in the sand here, you know, it's both sides are to blame, but then he ousts Bannon. Uh, what do you think about this, both about the timing and what it means for the Trump white house? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, your point obviously about Bannon being a, an extreme nationalist now whether he's a supports white nationalist or the alt-right or anything like that he's certainly backtracked on that in that uh, you know that now uh, infamous or famous i don't know uh interview he gave to the american prospect you know he called them i think losers or something like that but you know i think it's important to point out that this is not just rhetorical support uh if we take a look in terms of policy the trump administration has actually cut funding for a program called countering violent extremism which is a grant program that was set up in the obama administration that was designed to help deal with and sort of de-radicalize at least to the extent possible the far right and the trump administration canceled a bunch of these grants and has put a lot more of a focus on islamic extremism as opposed to kind of homegrown extremism which is exactly what you'd expect from kind of sort of a, a nationalist based movement. And, and pretty clearly, Steve Bannon has been the leading light of that in the Trump administration. And I guess, you know, we're obviously not privy to the insider stuff. And, and even the people who think they're privy get these sort of carefully selected leaks to maybe pass along certain messages. But I think it's it's pretty obvious that Steve Bannon is now feels like he's unshackled and energized. I mean, he's now heading up Breitbart again, and there's talk about him starting some other kind of alternative to Fox News that's much more far right, especially given that the Murdoch kids are a lot less right wing than their father. And it looks like they're trying to bring Fox News into maybe at least a slightly more kind of globalist type of perspective, which is anathema to Steve Bannon. And so none of this, I think, is is a positive development. I, I would like to think that Bannon being gone from the White House means that there's going to be less of this coming from Trump. But I don't really think so. Because I think Bannon was basically just the more articulate, uh, stronger channeler of these things that Donald Trump believes anyway, to the extent that he believes anything. So I really think we get kind of the worst of all possible worlds. And my concern is that this takes some of the pressure off of the Trump administration saying that, well, at least he fired Steve Bannon. I think that's not the point. The point is what he's actually doing or what he's not doing. Well, and that's interesting because one of the things that I have wondered if this wouldn't end up actually hurting the Trump administration in the long run. I don't know if you saw this quote from Bannon now that he's out. He told the Weekly Standard, quote, I feel jacked up. Now I'm free. Yeah. I've got my hands back on my weapons. Someone said it's Bannon the barbarian. I'm definitely going to crush the opposition. There's no doubt. I built a effing machine at Brett Bart, and now I'm about to go back knowing what I know. And we're about to rev up that machine yeah. and to rev it up. We will do. Yeah. And what that, do you think? Well, and that, that's, I totally get that from the perspective of uh, putting together a successful media operation, but it's pretty clear that Steve Bannon is not interested in compromise. And, and a lot of people aren't interested in compromise. When you talk in terms of crushing the enemy, this is, this is war. These are war, you know, uh, metaphors, and that's the problem, and that's more and more the problem, I think a lot of folks would say with American politics these days, is to the extent that we treat the other side as an evil enemy to be crushed under our feet, 
we we're we're going you know entirely against how politics has to work in a diverse country like ours with many decent people of different views. And I think Steve Bannon is, you know, I, I certainly, be, I think he believes what he believes and I, you know, I don't question that, but I think he is just a cancer on the body politic. And I think it's just disaster. He's just a disaster essentially. And, and I think he's going to create a lot of havoc, which is what he wants. But what's interesting though, do you mean, do you think that that havoc is now going to be directed at the Trump administration? In other words, when I read that, I almost when I say that he says knowing what I know, it almost seems like he's he's taking a shot um, at Trump, maybe a veiled, maybe not so veiled threat here. As a matter of fact, you had mentioned the American Prospect article um, and there has been suggestion that that was meant to be kind of a an attack at Trump. So do you see these things? Does you call him a cancer? I don't disagree. But do you see this as a cancer you've kind of let loose now, maybe on yourself and not just the opposition? Yeah, I see what you're saying. I think it's more, I think the attacks are going to be much more on uh, some of uh, Trump's staffers, the kind of more uh, establishment Republicans, the more globalist Republicans. I think in the next week or two, we should expect to see a huge push against uh, H.R. McMaster, their national security advisor, no love lost between McMaster and, and Bannon and so forth. But I don't think there's going to be anything against Trump himself. There's just going to be a huge push against some of his people and some pressure maybe to not sign certain things that might come through Congress. You know, there's obviously we have, you know, a budget stuff coming through and, and some other stuff, but uh, I don't think he's going to attack Trump personally. I think he realizes that would be counterproductive. He's just going to try to push Trump in the direction. I think he feels Trump wants to go anyway, and he can be much more uh, assiduous. He can be much more vocal in doing that outside of the, uh, outside of the administration and inside of the administration. Well, it is true. I mean, we know that Trump likes to take his cues from media, uh, specifically cable media. But uh, to kind of move a little bit, uh, you were making a joke about this earlier. Let's talk a little bit about Hope Hicks, the new intern uh, communications director who has joined on to the Trump Trump machine here. And it's interesting because she's not the person that you would have think of as being communication directors. I don't know how much our listeners know about uh, Hope. She is 28 and her background, she actually has no political experience background on that side. She was actually a model, an, act- an actress. Uh, she got her degree from Southern Methodist University. And what's interesting is, is that she ends up getting into the Trump orbit through Ivanka and her work on the fashion line with Ivanka and then slowly gaining trust with Trump uh, Trump will mention her in a uh, 2016 New York Times profile, and that's how she's going to kind of get in and then start being part of the presidential campaign, uh, lauding his outsider status. But she's a really kind of an unusual pick in some ways, but I'm going to actually argue that maybe she's not so unusual in in a Trump way. Uh, but before I talk about that, why don't you kind of address that first, Michael? Well, before I do address that, well, we should uh, thank our second sponsor of the show today, uh, Brooklinen. Dot com. So let me ask you, Trey, how often would you say you think about sheets? Oh, it's, it's never. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. And I mean, almost nobody really thinks about sheets. That would be weird. But here's the thing. I'm willing to bet that 
uh, like me until until recently. You know, you you don't think about these things, but but most people could really benefit from an upgrade to the sheets they sleep under pretty much every single night. And, and you know, maybe you don't think the sheets matter all that much because you don't think about sheets at all. I get that, but let me tell you from personal experience, they really can matter. I've tried for reasons I won't even get into. Uh, you don't want to know, trust me. I tried a lot of different sheets over the last year. My, my wife and I have this sort of running battle over sheet. It's, anyway, <laughs> I won't get into it. But the point is, is I'm not shy about trying sheets, returning sheets that don't meet my standards, which are ridiculously high, I think. And I could say from personal experience, Brooklinen makes great sheets. And better than that, they're luxury sheets without that luxury, incredibly marked up price that nobody wants to pay. And I love my Brooklyn and sheets. I think if you try them, you'll love them too. And brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer just for politics guys, listeners, you get $20 off and free shipping when you use the promo code TPG at brooklinen.com. In fact, you don't have to believe me that they're good. Maybe you think I'm half full of it, but Brooklyn and is so confident that you'll love your new sheets that they give you a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all their sheets and comforters. A lifetime warranty on sheets and comforters, that's that's crazy. I don't know, but they're doing it. Go figure. So there's no reason, the point being, not to give these sheets a try. And the only way to get that $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code TPG at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code TPG. Brooklinen. These are the best sheets ever. Okay, so, you know, Hope Hicks, it, I guess it doesn't surprise me, right? Uh, Donald Trump loves loyalists. Donald Trump has no loyalty to anyone but Donald Trump, right? But Hope Hicks has demonstrated over years now, well, it couldn't be that long because she's only 28, but over the course of her career, that she is very loyal to Donald Trump. She's not going to try to steal the spotlight like a Steve Bannon, you know, where reportedly what Bannon Trump actually said to some associates, what the, does this guy, who, who does he think he is? You know, Hope Hicks is not going to be that person. And so I think he likes the idea of having somebody who is submissive, who is photogenic around him, who is kind of this reputation as being sort of a Trump whisperer sort of thing. And this is exactly the kind of person, of course, Donald Trump doesn't need in his orbit. Donald Trump needs somebody he respects who's going to tell him the truth and so forth. But, uh, you know, who else wants this job, honestly? You know, I, I don't know. You know, she's called the interim communications director at this point, and she's supposed to be leading the search for a permanent communications director. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe she ends up taking on that job. You know, that happens sometimes. For instance, Dick Cheney uh, was one of the main players in trying to find a vice presidential running mate for George W. Bush, and we know how that ended up. So uh, it's not unprecedented again. Uh, talk about the worst job in all of government. Uh, well, maybe that or, or, you know, a spokesperson. But I, 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 I guess I wish I, I don't know if I can say I wish her luck, but uh, I think it's an awful job. I don't know how long it's going to be before she has to come out and just out and out lie for the president, which she hasn't done as far as I can tell right now. But uh, I think she's just another Trumpian enabler, which is what Trump surrounds himself with, loyalists and enablers. And that's an understandable impulse when you're under siege. And it's exactly the wrong thing to do. But it takes a person of far more leadership ability and far more character than Donald Trump to realize that and change course. So I, 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 it's not a surprising move. I don't think it's going to, you know, it's another deck chair, rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic sort of thing, I think.
Well, and it is interesting because she has actually been the longest campaign staffer in his inner circle. Yeah. She will now be the longest uh, who has not turned over. So that's kind of fascinating to me. And I think it's fascinating. He seems to have, you know, early in the campaign or later in the campaign, one of his uh, oopses was when he made comments about women. But it's fascinating that it seems to be certain kinds of women who he prefers to surround himself with. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I, I think that's, that's, uh, another, another thing that we can see through, uh, you know, a series of, uh, a series of examples and so forth. And, and again, it's just, he's just not a very reflective guy. He's a very instinctive guy. He, he, he thinks he knows what he knows and he likes what he likes and he's in, he's uninterested in learning. He's uninterested in questioning anything that he does and maybe trying to take advice from people who don't see the world like he does. And uh, I guess maybe there's, one potential, one potential counterexample to that. Maybe we should point out to be fair to Donald Trump. I don't want to be as reflexively anti-Donald Trump as Donald Trump is, say, anti-fake news, as he would call it. But you know, he he did appoint, or he did he did appoint uh, uh, John Kelly as his chief of staff, right? Um, and, sure. and and Kelly, for for lack of for I, I, for reasons I do not understand, took the job. <laughs> You know, but, but yes, we talked about that a few weeks ago on the show. And, but the thing is, is it, from all accounts, he has done a, a pretty good job of tightening up the staff organization. You know, no one really, no one really in the, in the Trump organization respected Priebus, who was just kind of this establishment Republican person who didn't really wield any authority, didn't seem to be very good organizationally because of that. And a lot of people respect Kelly because he's a general and Donald Trump loves generals. And he came in with this authority, this idea he was going to crack the whip. And again, he's done that. And it's a, by, by all accounts, again, it, the, the organization is running a lot better. Morale is a little bit higher. Geez, how could it be any lower? I don't know how it is this week now. But the one person that he can't control is Donald Trump. And pretty clearly, you know, when, you, when he was uh, reported to be uh, frustrated and dismayed by the president, it's like, geez, who didn't see that coming? I don't know what he thought he was going to be able to do. I think he's reached the limits of what he can do. And again, uh, it's it's another, I hate to use the analogy again, but, you know, the ship is going down and he's trying to, you know, he's trying to create some order out of this chaos. But as long as the chaos maker in chief is the president of the United States, that's not going to change. So, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what Hope Hicks does. It doesn't matter what John Kelly does. At the end of the day, Donald Trump is president and Donald Trump is a lazy, undisciplined man who just is, is unfit for the office. Just essentially that what Bob Corker, a Republican, uh, basically said in no uncertain terms. No, it's fascinating. I oftentimes think uh, there's this quote, uh, if anybody's ever read uh, some of the works on Steve Jobs, uh, he was ousted by a guy named Scully, who once made this phenomenally telling comment where he said, Apple uh, computer is like a ship that has leaks, and it's my job to keep bailing the water out. And I feel that is kind of like the Trump, because what everybody said about it was, well, what about the, what about the leaks in the ship? And I think for most of the people here, they're, they're so busy trying to bail out the weekly craziness that happens. Nobody has an opportunity to deal with the holes in the boat. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and there are there are definitely some you know important ramifications for that. I mean, things don't get done when when this stuff isn't taken care of. This sort of uh, I don't know, you call it maybe the infrastructure of the administration, which is which has been uh, we can talk about infrastructure in a larger sense, but that's been neglected essentially. You can't govern through the way Donald Trump wants to govern. It just is not possible. Being president involves an awful lot of drudgery, an awful lot of hard work, an awful lot of unglamorous things that Donald Trump isn't interested in doing. And you you can't, this this chaotic sort of environment, you know, is is not conducive to, to any sort of progress. You know, and it, it kind of leads right into uh, a listener mail question we got not too long ago. Uh, listener Michael, uh, another Michael, uh, writing in on Facebook actually asked us, if the administration keeps changing key members at its current rate, what does that mean for policy and messaging domestically and internationally? And I think that's a great question. You know, um, Trey, what do you, what do you think? You know, how would you, how would you answer Michael on that? That's a, that's an interesting one. I think that if Trump has done anything consistently, it's been that messaging is Donald Trump. It, it's from him and Bannon being out in part, I think, is a, is the belief that Trump doesn't want other voices. So I don't know if all of this turnover will end up changing the tone or the nature of the messaging. And I think that this past week is really a, a good example, uh, kind of answering Michael's question, because we'll notice, you know, we had all of these new personnel, and yet we still end up with Trump being Trump during questions on Tuesday, and then backing that up on his phone on social media. So for me, I, I don't see that the messaging is going to start as a matter of fact, I think one of the problems is, is that the messaging is not going to shift no matter how much churn there is around in the White House staff. What do you think about that, Michael? Yeah, you know, I, I think that the one thing I think that, well, there are many things, but one of the things I think a lot of uh, people hate about politicians is that they seem, most of them seem so scripted. And they're so cautious. And, uh, uh, you know, they oftentimes they try to what be what's called on message. And you hear the same thing again and again and again when the talking points are distributed and so forth. But there's a reason for that. You know, there's a point to that consistency. There's a point to that discipline. There's a point to that caution. Because you're dealing with incredibly important things that affect the lives of millions and millions of people. And so you can't just be cavalier. You need to have a strategy. You need to think before you act. And that, that's from the bottom, that's from the top down. And, and so I think if anything, what this churn does is it makes it even harder to keep that sort of, to keep any sort of consistency. And, and that's, that's not going to change. I, I think uh, things are just, if, if it's possible, I don't know if it's possible to think for things to get worse. Uh, but every time I've thought it's not possible for things to get worse, if, you know, a few weeks ago, someone said, do you think that Donald Trump is going to hesitate to come out uh, against neo-Nazis? I would say, well, geez, that seems pretty unlikely, but, but there you go, you know, and we could see more of this, right? Because now it's rumored that, or there are, there are, talk that there are going to be more of these rallies, that the, the, the alt-right is revved up and they're ready to do some more Boston, of this stuff. I believe, is next. Yeah. So what's going to happen there? What's the president going to do there? Is he all, is he all, of, a, all of a sudden going to say, come out with this condemnation? Or is he just going to, you know, instinctively push back against what the media wants him to do? I, I think 
uh, the, the, the safer bet is to say he's going to push back against what the media wants him to do and just give a big middle finger to everyone who who's trying to tell him how to be president. You know, I mean, he said that before. He said in response to that, what's presidential? And I said, well, if I do it, it's presidential. Well, that's just simply not true. Uh, uh, he can believe that and he's going to believe that, but that's just not the case. And he's the most unpresidential president we've had in modern terms. And, and I only hope that uh, by the time he's out, he doesn't so damage the institution that it can't recover, though I, I'm a little less uh, I'm a little less uh, I'm somewhat optimistic about that because I think our institutions are a little more uh, resilient than a lot of people give them credit for. Oh, ditto on that. I think that one of the things it's easy to do when you see, and this goes back, you were talking about that kill all military view of politics where you have to destroy the other side. The idea that institutions can be crumbled immediately is an, is an indication that the institutions are flawed, not that the people who are holding them are flawed. Yeah. Uh, and so if, if, if our institutions can't survive a, a Donald Trump, then I think we have bigger problems than Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that, that kind of brings me, I, I don't know if we're, if we're uh, ready, ready to talk about, oh, you know, before we get to, uh, I was going to su suggest we maybe talk about some of the stuff we're reading because there's a great uh, sort of tie into that, but I almost totally forgot, Trey, I, I, I actually forgot last week and I'm embarrassed to admit this, but we have some new supporters on Patreon. I'd like to take a minute to thank them. So, yes. and, yeah. So, uh, Mark, Bernie and Shelly are our newest supporters on Patreon, and we really do greatly appreciate your support. It means it means a great deal to us. Um, and, you know, it, support of listeners like Mark, Bernie, and Shelly really keep help keep us going. And so if you'd like to join them and help out the show, all you have to do is go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. So thanks very much, guys. Um, so, so yeah, I was going to say, you know, this kind of, when we were talking about sort of the things that we're reading, the more kind of in-depth type of things we're reading, to me, this kind of ties in very well, which is maybe why I was thinking about it this week. But and I, I'm going to recommend to people something that I know that you're familiar with. Uh, it's a book by a political scientist named Richard Neustadt, who wrote it back in 1960. Now, that's a long time ago. Uh, it's a book called Presidential Power, but it's still very, very relevant today. Um, I'm guessing, Trey, that you probably first encountered it in grad school, maybe? I had read an excerpt of it in undergrad, but okay. then I read the entire book in grad school, yes. Yeah, me too. Um, and, and, you know, it, to, to give you the, the short version, uh, basically to get things done if you're president, especially domestically, you have to be a skilled persuader. You have to be a skilled leader. You have to know how to work with people to get people to come on board. Because if you take a look at presidential power at least when it comes to doing things legislatively, to doing big domestic things, it's really quite limited. And that was by design of the framers. And, and so pre successful presidents are people who can make that happen, especially successful presidents who don't have the advantage of huge congressional majorities, which, you know, President Trump certainly is. Um, now, I know, uh, I, should, I should point out that internationally, this is a different story, right? Um, presidents can do a lot more internationally, which is a little more of a concern by a lot of reasons. In fact, there's another political scientist who wrote a book in the 60s again, or wrote, sorry, uh, uh, put forward a theory in the 1960s called the Two Presidencies Theory, which is uh, Aaron Waldofsky, mm -hmm. right? Suggesting that presidents have a lot more leeway 
internationally. They can do a lot more internationally for better or for worse, whether it uh, involves getting involved into wars of choice in, uh, uh, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan or possibly doing some unfortunate things in regards to North Korea or something like that. But that's uh, sort of another issue. But my point is Newstat is still relevant today. And I know a lot of people actually won't read the book itself, but there was a great article this week by uh, another political scientist, Jonathan Bernstein, who writes for Bloomberg View, and his column is worth reading, I think, pretty much every day. He's one of the people I read all the time. He wrote a great column about the key points in the book, and uh, uh, we'll make sure to include the links to both Newstat's book and uh, Jonathan Bernstein's column on it in the, uh, in the show notes today. And if I can help you out there a little bit, Michael, as a matter of fact, for those who might want to read Neustadt but not have to read the entire book, there's another political scientist, uh, Ken Coleman, who does excerpts uh, for books generally targeted for undergraduates. And that particular one is the freebie for his uh, readings in American politics book oh. is the Neustadt reading. Oh, cool. um, so if you head to Norton, you can actually read what he sees as being the most important parts of uh, Neustadt's work. Excellent. Oh, that's really great. Yeah. Well, and if you're going to be my student, just get ready. You're going to read it anyway. <laughs> there you go. So, so uh, uh, do you have, do you have anything? Uh, I, I, I may, I might've stalled new stuff from you. I don't know, but. Uh, no, no, actually this week, uh, Amazon helped me out because for a long time, I, I'll, I'll admit that I'm a David McCullough fan. Uh, he's one of the guys he writes at the Adams book. I read the one volume. I really like that. But he has a book that came out not too long ago, but I know I'm getting on this a little bit later, called The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris. And it's the story of Americans who, instead of going west, they come to Paris and in how that ends up changing their worldview. And then these guys come back and how that changes the United States in a number of ways. And a number of weeks ago, I'd actually recommended a book on Napoleon. And as a matter of fact, you had read it as well. And if you've read, if you read the Napoleon book, it's a really great backdrop for what's happening here with McCullough because you get some really fascinating insights to compare the United States and France through the writings and the letters of these people who were long-term visitors in Paris. And one of the things that I noted, and I talked a little bit about this on social media, but there's many through the book, is these different attitudes between France and the United States on freedom and security. The Americans, for instance, who go over to France are shocked that you have to have a passport. <laughs> yeah. And they see that as being this like, oh my goodness, you're you're destroying my freedom. I've got to carry a passport around with me and you're gonna like search me when I come into the country. Don't I just get to come in? And the French thought that that was crazy because how are you going to have security if you don't have passports and you screen everybody? So it's interesting to kind of see what the differing views between Americans and um, the French were at that time and then to see, you know, where we've altered. You know, so for instance, today, I bet you there are very few Americans who would sympathize with the Americans of the past and saying, wait a second. You didn't want passports. You're just going to walk around freely. So it was, it's been a really fascinating read. Um, McCullough is a really uh, easy guy to read, but he's always got some in-depth things to say. And I really recommend The Greater Journey. Oh, that sounds great. You know, and I, I, I agree with you. I've read a lot of McCullough stuff. I haven't read that. I have to put it on my list. But, you know, and to, and to, your, to your larger point about that, that the importance of 
having some sort of exposure to d- different cultures, different ways of thinking, whether ideally, you know, if you immerse yourself in that culture, not, not everyone's has the ability, the means to do that, but even, you know, exposing yourself to, uh, different, to, to different news media to the, you know, uh, you know, I sometimes read the guardian, I think has great po- coverage of American politics from a very different viewpoint. That sort of thing can be really valuable if you give it a chance to give it, to get a sense of how other people think who are, you know, decent, good people, but just because of their culture, because of their surroundings, to see the world in a different way. And, you know, I should point out, not to pile on the president, but I'm going to, that, you know, here's a guy who seems incredibly uninterested in that. You know, he he doesn't like to travel a whole lot. He likes to ensconce himself in Trump world wherever he goes and so forth. So here's somebody who has uh, tried to, as much as he can, avoid exposure to different cultures, different ideas, that sort of thing. And then this is the kind of narrowness that you get when you do that. And it's, it's, it's a really sad sort of thing. So, uh, but, but, but anyway, so, so uh, I, I definitely would agree with you. Uh, David McCullough as a general rule is a great example. And what, what's, what's the title of the book? And I have to write, write this down. It's the greater journey, the greater Americans journey. in Paris. All right. All right. Well, I think that about uh, does it for, for this week. Would you say Trey? I think so. All Michael. right. Well, hey, thanks everyone for listening. You know, we really hope you liked what you heard and that you will check out today's sponsors, ZipRecruiter, where Politics Guys listeners can post jobs for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash Politics Guy and Brooklyn, where Politics Guys listeners get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code TPG at Brooklinen.com. You know, listener support is a huge help to us and we really do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. If you want to support the show without spending a single nickel, dime, penny, what have you, just share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets that we put up on Facebook and Twitter. Also, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes really does help. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can mail us, email us at mail@politicsguys.com. also through our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week. Trey always has some really great stuff uh, that, that, that I enjoy reading, and I think it really causes a, a lot of interesting debate on that Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash page, and we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.